When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Strong Woman Strong Woman Hey, I'm Poppy Ajuda and welcome to my Strong Woman podcast. This podcast is all about discussing the things most important to me. From music, feminism, sexuality and gender to race, class and politics. On this podcast, I will invite friends to talk about how these concepts intersect with their lives and hopefully offer you a little bit of laughter and a lot of food for thought. Hey, you're listening to this week's episode in conversation with Comfort Abuta. Comfort is a good friend of mine who is an assistant psychologist in youth mental health, working with and assessing young people every day. And considering mental health is one of the biggest issues I see facing all of the young people around me, with rising levels of anxiety and depression everywhere, I thought it would be really interesting for you to hear her opinion on mental health, on social media, on the disparity between black and brown communities over their white counterparts in diagnosis, and just generally open up the discussion on a sometimes tabooed topic. Hey, Comfort. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. Yeah, it's fine. So, Comfort, we know that you're an assistant psychologist in youth mental health. But what does that kind of job entail for anyone who hasn't heard of it before? So I'm an assistant psychologist. I currently work in what they call a CAMS team. So that stands for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. So that's kind of a what they call a statutory service. So every borough will have one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, it's just from anyone under 18 who um, experiences mental health difficulties. They come into that service and they get professional support for their health. And what led you to work in that place? Like, what do you think is... Did you just fall into it or did you mm. want to work there because you thought that you could help and that you think that space is help, helpful for young people? I'm going to say something cheeky. <laughs> it's, it's more that, like, I guess I fell into it. I don't think I ever really wanted to work with kids, which sounds awful. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I did a psychology undergraduate degree mm-hmm. and then I did a sports and exercise science psychology um, master's. Mm-hmm. And from that, I kind of became really interested in 
purely mental health from a clinical psychology perspective, I guess. And yeah, I decided that that's kind of the career I wanted. And to get into that field, you kind of just got to like find a assistant psychology role. Mm. So I found one in um, an adoption charity and I worked there for about two years. And before that, I did some work with local councils with like looked after children. So children who might have some experience with being in care, might be fostered, that type of thing. And then I guess just from there, I was a bit like, oh, actually, this is interesting and I don't mind working with kids. And then moved into the CAMS team, which Mm. is where I am now. And it's kind of interesting that, I don't know, I feel like it's quite an intense job to work in Mm. from some of the stories you told me it seems like you have like very you're kind of thrown into very intense situations because obviously mental health can be such a varied expression of personhood and I mean I feel like for some people if you haven't chosen like because you really wanted to do that job to go Mm. into that role it could turn you off from Mm. working with kids or from dealing with mental health issues that are very serious yeah what about it do you think kept you in that role, like kept you wanting to, looking to help? Mm. So I actually decided to volunteer in a, what they call an acute inpatient ward. So that's kind of like when they talk about adults or young people being sectioned because Mm. their mental health has reached a point where somebody has deemed that they can't keep themselves safe or they might they might not be safe in basically a community setting. Mm. They would go to what they call an inpatient setting. So I volunteered there and I was just on an, what they call a acute ward and there were 16 women who basically stayed in that ward. And I just sat and I kind of spoke with them every Friday. We kind of did what they call like occupational uh, therapy type activities. So we played games, we listened to music, we kind of just hung out. And it was from that where it was kind of like, it was weird and it's gone sound really stupid to say, but I was kind of like, these are just women who've just struggled and they've ended mm. up here. And somewhere along the line, something was missed by someone or Mm. or they weren't able to access help in that way. And I just thought, actually, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. Mm. So it was kind of happenstance. I ended up working with kids as opposed to adults, but it was more that I was like, actually, yeah, it's it's mental health in this way that I want to be Mm. um, working in. Did you feel like you could connect to their story or, like, connect to... You know, I don't know, Mm. I feel like if, Mm. if I'm working with other women there's something that I connect because I'm a woman and I've been through certain things or whatever. Yeah. So statistics around, I guess, like inpatient wards and and that ward particularly, it has a very strong black community Mm. who who get sectioned, right? So in that ward particularly, I was a lot younger than as well, was a lot of older black women mm. and they took the role of like acting like mum and I felt very uncomfortable with that I was a bit like you're not my mum and you're like being like what are you doing here isn't it late yeah. and I'm like no I'm two degrees in I'm actually past school that kind of thing <laughs> and it was just weird it I think it was just that moment of them feeling like oh are you a nurse are you what are you doing what are you doing like all of these things I kind of was just these are just normal women that have just struggled and they got here yeah how do I how does society how does anybody access them before they get here how do we talk about mental health how do we access mental health how do we think about mental health Mm. so yeah I'm not sure if it necessarily was a moment where like there was a specific connection that I had I just remember coming away from the experience and being like yeah actually I'm supposed to be there Mm. and do you think that you learn from the people that you experience how to have better mental health how to you kind of it's made you more aware of things that you weren't aware of before yeah I think for me it's weird that even if I look back at uni times Mm. and I think about my mental health then I don't think I ever really thought about it 
per se. I never really thought, you know, am I having a moment where I'm super anxious? Mm. Or do I have really low mood? Or like, what's going on with me? But I think being exposed and did you of, did you have those things when you were at uni? I think looking back, there were moments. I wouldn't say I experienced anxiety, but I played rugby at uni and I had like a really big um, injury in my last year, and I really really struggled. And I I don't think I ever recognised how much I was struggling until mm. afterwards. And there were certain like family events that like popped up that were happening at the same time and uni was a big buffer for my social life kind of just like where all my friends were and yeah and I just really struggled with like being incapacitated in the way that I was Mm. and then being because I went to uni quite far away being so far away from family and and feeling like I couldn't really be with my friends in the same way because I was like physically hurting so, yeah, I think there were points where I had low mood. I just don't think I ever realised it at the time. Yeah, I feel like even thinking about, because we're the same age, and I don't feel like when we were at university, it was a time when people were talking about mental health in mm. the same way. I don't think, because I definitely had, I mean, I get anxiety all the time, but I think I probably had anxiety at uni because I felt very disenfranchised, if that's the right word, from mm. other people because of class or because of a number of things. Mm. And so I would often feel like really anxious about speaking up in class, really anxious about saying anything, really anxious about reading aloud because I'm quite dyslexic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever talked to anyone about that. And also the pressure of having a lot of work to do, of wanting to get a great grade, like all of those those things and trying to balance the social life or whatever. And I think at that point in our lives, it wasn't really a thing that people talked about. And it's interesting because we'll probably talk later about society and Mm. like social media and stuff. Mm. But actually... At that point, social media was probably the first entrance for people to understand mental health and talk about Mm. it. Mm. I hadn't heard of people being anxious before that. And I wonder if your interest in mental health wouldn't have been sparked to that point because it wasn't something that was in the forefront Mm. of our minds. Like, unless you have an entry to it, people don't really talk about it. It's kind of seen as a weakness. Mm. And I don't know if the people around you would have even known how to deal with it if you know what I mean yeah it's weird because like I had one really good friend who struggles with super low mood and can get quite anxious and, mm. and I had other friends who you know were going through various things at uni and we spoke about it kind of but also not really and um, no one really even thought to kind of talk about you know how do you access professional help and what does mm. that look like and you need to do that thing of doing like mental health week and they bring in like an alpaca do you know what I mean and <laughs> it's true I remember there were so many alpacas and, and everyone was like oh my god like puppies in the library and that was kind of it and yeah I think that's a really interesting point to be honest how one access to professional help mm. and I mean you're a good person to talk to about that because I don't think people think about accessing professional health mm. all the time when they have mental health issues that mean that they're still functional and I think that there are these like I remember um, hearing about puppies and bringing kittens Mm. in and you know just get a dog and you'll be fine yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's funny if we think about that like at that point no one was saying oh you should try and get some professional help oh you should try and get some free counselling from blah 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 I feel like especially for me the idea of going to a doctor and being like I'm this, this and this. One, I don't think they're going to believe me Mm. or they think I'm going to be exaggerating and maybe that's something to do with being a woman and Mm -hmm. feeling like you're hysterical Mm -hmm. if you're struggling. But I don't think I'd want to go through that. Mm. I can't think of anything worse. Mm. And so I think actually the ability to access that professional help can make a huge difference. How do you see that professional space as someone who is working in it? Systematically, how does it work? I mean, you can obviously be honest about that, you know. Yeah, OK. <laughs> my profession, apparently. It's hard, I don't know. It's kind of like 
I think I'm going to stick to kind of talking about um, child and adolescent mental health. Mm. I think in terms of work and seeing some of the young people that I've seen or, or just being in the system, I think that parents and kids, they don't really know about accessing mental health. They don't really know how to talk about it. They don't mm. really know what to do often until it's at the point where it's a crisis, essentially. Mm. And I think that does differ depending on, and I know you said we'll touch on it, but like that does differ depending on class, uh, depending on race, depending on like socioeconomic state, like so many different things. But I, I still think there's a lot of work to be done in educating young people and educating parents and educating carers about what a mental health difficulty can look like mm. and actually normalising some of it. Because as you said, you spoke about anxiety. I know so many people who are anxious and wouldn't name it as, a mm. mental health difficulty they would just be like oh well I just get a bit you know when I leave the house and it's like oh, that's anxiety um, and that's common I guess we just don't talk about it mm. so and I think you brought up a good point about educating parents because I think part of the reason that young people are less willing to talk about it is that the person that you might mm. have grown up with or the person who has taught you everything about being who you are, mm. you can't confide in them about this thing that feels very personal to you. You know, if you have a problem where you're really, really stuck, it's usually your parents who you go to at a young age. Yes. And if you can't explain to your parents what that is because it doesn't exist to them mm. for a cultural reason or a class reason or any reason, really... Mm then you're already in this kind of circle of disbelief. And then that affects on how you view yourself, mm -hmm. how you feel about telling anyone else about it. You know, I feel like it's much more scary to go and explain that to a stranger who's likely to disbelieve you if your parents don't believe you, mm -hmm. you know, in, your, in your psyche, in your mm -hmm. head. I think that talking to the people who are guardians mm. of the people who are struggling is important because... It, I think there is so little understanding on how it works. And you do do that, don't you? You have these kind of group counselling sessions. We have to think of things systemically. Yes, the issue of anxiety or whatever it is that we're naming as a mental health difficulty, that person is experiencing, but they are not a person in isolation, right? They mm. live in a system where they've got a family unit, whatever that makeup is. They go to school. What does the school say? How does school reinforce that problem or, or help that problem? Then there's society, do you know what I mean? It, it, if we think about it as being circles, these circles just get bigger and more people are in them as we like go out. So you mm. can't just work with that child alone, especially when it's a child. Do you know what I mean? There's there's a guardian there somewhere mm. who has to help that child get to that way. And we are, I say we, as in people who work in mental health, will only see that child or that, that family for an hour a week. Mm. And all those other hours are being filled with other things and other people and other narratives around mental health or well-being or whatever it is. So they have to do some of the work too. A mental health professional can only be there in the time that they're there and then there's other things going on. So Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's just having everyone on board, mm. having society as recognising these issues as prevalent and important, you know, recognising the statistics of rising suicide rates or mm -hmm. anxiety disorders. Or I think I... I read that anxiety is the most common mental illness in the US and six in 100 people every week are diagnosed with anxiety disorders in the UK. And I mean, that's just those who admit it because I know almost everyone I know has anxiety and I don't think that they are diagnosed. And one in five people in the UK have suicidal thoughts, which I thought was really scary. And that's just to say on being diagnosed with anxiety, you'd have to go and see a mental health professional to be diagnosed. Mm. And... Often you'd have to get to a point where 
and this isn't always, this is this is a bit of a generalisation, but you'd often have to get to a point where that anxiety is quite debilitating mm. for them to say, actually, yeah, you have a diagnosis. But you can be under threshold of what they call a diagnosis and still really struggle this with is anxiety. The, this is the problem with diagnostics. System, yeah, diagnostics yeah. And, and the systematic <clears throat> understanding of mental illness. Mm. And I kind of was going to touch on it a bit later. Not only is you have to be having a mental breakdown mm. to be able to see someone and be recognised mm. and that kind of plays into the idea of not being believed mm. or feeling like you're overacting what you're feeling. But also the cultural aspect of diagnostic mm. and I think there is a really big problem with the way that we have in the UK and probably in the US as well with diagnosing mental illnesses with people from different cultures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we live in such mm -hmm. a multicultural society and London, every second person is from somewhere else... Yep it's kind of unacceptable that we would miss signs of mental illness mm. when there are so many people from different places. It feels like it should be such an integral part of training yeah. to be aware of these kind of issues. And I guess just on that, it's kind of like, if we think about physical health being a science that has existed way before the kind of like psychological or mm. like mental health um, disciplines. It's only, what, 2020 that there was a young person who's I think a second year medical student who wrote a book called Mind the Gap, which started to highlight what certain symptoms would look like on black and brown bodies. Wow. So yeah. if, if medicine has only just come to be like, oh, actually, you know, let's talk about what physical health looks like mm. on different people... We're not, not even, we're, yeah. you know what I mean? We're not even there. And, and that's not to say that we're not going to get there and that we shouldn't be there. It's just to say that we are behind and there is a lot of work to be done. And I think some... And things are being missed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With a lot of people. So I think some schools of thought, some um, disciplines are really looking into like, what are we doing that's not culturally sensitive? What are we missing? What are we ignoring? But we're still really behind. Mm. There's a lot of work to be done. I wanted to ask you how you see the discussion around treating the symptom rather than the cause of the problem mm. in terms of mental health. And I think this is a complex issue because it can be very charged with emotion and it's a bit of, to me, a bit of like chicken and egg situation because, you know, while we might recognise society as the root of the problem, for me anyway, what do we do about people who are suffering right now? And mm. I think it's always a difficult conversation because I, maybe it's naive of me, but I don't feel like we should have to medicate to fix a problem that isn't our own fault. Mm. It's not my fault. I, I feel terrible. It's all the pressures that the world puts on me. It's a system that doesn't value a positive mindset. It's a system that doesn't value people who work long hours mm. or, you know, have big families or have to support other family members. And what do you think about that, that idea of how to treat mental health issues? Mm. That's a big question, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so it's difficult to say in this, I guess, I should probably start with saying that this is my opinion mm. and, you know, every mental health professional will have their opinion and, you know, you have to work in an individualistic way in a sense that you have to work with what works for that young person or that adult or whoever it mm. is is suffering with a mental health difficulty. So this is not to say that I disagree with medication, but it's also to say that there needs to be more thought into it. And I guess this is an anecdote, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So there's this one girl she who I went to uni with and I remember she was had really low mood and was really, really struggling. 
And we kind of had been like, oh, maybe you should go to the GP, like not really knowing what yeah. the hell you do. So she did it anyway. And their first thing was just like, oh, yeah, we can give you antidepressants. Mm. And she asked me, what do I think? And I've got my own opinion. So I was like, absolutely not. There are things that you need to obviously talk about and that need to be accessed and need mm. to be explored before you can start to take any form of antidepressant because maybe the conversations that are not being had would be the thing that helps your mental health. Mm. And... You know, maybe if she had gone down that route and she'd had, you know, loads of talking therapy of some kind and it, was, it wasn't it was beneficial and she'd exhausted a lot of options, medication could have been a good thing for her in that instance. Mm. But I think part of the problem is that there's a propensity to just medicate straight away mm. and not look at deeper rooted issues. And I don't think that's all the time. I think it is dependent on the mental health and difficulty. Of it. Yeah, that yeah. you're, you know, it depends on how debilitating it, it is. If somebody can't or has so much anxiety that they can't speak to anybody new, so they can't have a talking therapy or they can't leave the house or whatever, then maybe there is room to say, actually, how about you, I don't know, take this thing that helps you feel calmer so that you mm. can get into a space where you can talk about it. Um, but I think part of the problem is when you just hand somebody medication and there's no real exploration mm. as to what is really going on. Because it's um, kind of a, a little bit that mentality that it's a quick fix. Mm. Like you can just do this and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. But actually, if you have a lot of problems in your life, you yeah. have don't have the right people around yeah. you, you're not looking after yourself, you don't know how to look after yourself because mm. no one's taught you to, mm. then those problems will still be there. Mm. And I think I agree with that. I think that there are cases where medication is the most optimal thing for a person and it obviously depends on the issue that you're facing. But I do think that it should be at least in conjunction with mm, absolutely. trying to figure out what those issues are mm. and where they're rooted mm. and can life be lived differently? Mm. And, you know, if we lived in a society where that was put into practice and that was shown importance, mm. then would that change a lot of people's mental yeah. health? Because it's also like mental health difficulties don't just come from nowhere. Do you know what I mean? They this don't just thing, yeah. spring up and all of a sudden you're struggling. Something happens, whether, like, even if it's really big or really small, there mm. is something going on that was a trigger and that can be a single incident, that can be loads of incidents. It, you know, it doesn't really matter in that way, but there is something that happens that causes somebody to to start struggling mm. my personal philosophy is that if you're not trying to get to what that problem was how much help are you being to that person because mm. also sometimes people don't even know that there was a single incident or there was um, a series of incidents that led them to be struggling sometimes it's hard to even recognize what that is so you know if you give them medication and that same thing happens again for yeah, whatever reason they're not prepared they're not prepared they won't even know that that was a trigger to that led them to where they are now do you see what I mean so I I feel like it can't just be medication. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I feel like it, I think that's, it needs work. That's an important point, though. I think we live in a society that likes to treat things at the surface level mm. a lot of the time with mm. a lot of issues. It's like instead of looking at the root of the problem, which might take longer, which might be harder, which might show us uncomfortable truths, mm. we tend to like paint over it with something else until mm. it comes up again. Mm. And I think that there should be more support for young people in not getting to the point where they're triggered so many times that they having a mental health issue or a crisis or whatever. Like if that was something that was more institutionalised, where in schools there was more support for young people. Yeah. You know, so many young people, especially in relation to class and race and gender, go through stuff that they don't have people to talk to about. Yeah. 
and they're just seen as the problematic kids mm. at mm. school. Absolutely. And then they grow up and they've still got those problems which no one helped them sort out because mm. their parents weren't equipped mm -hmm. to sort them out mm -hmm. and no one at school cared enough to, mm. to make that effort. Mm. Then you get older and you don't want to go to... Like, I feel like it's kind of a knock-on effect. Yeah. And I also think in that adult service, or when we're talking about adult services, there's a disproportionate amount of black people who end up in these services. Mm. And often they end up there and they won't necessarily be receiving a talking therapy. Mm. They will be on medication. Mm. And I feel like maybe if you, or the system, should I say, thinks about the talking therapy or the, or the type of therapy that they need, that's not necessarily talking, it could be art, music, whatever it is, that could help them get better, we wouldn't have inpatient units the way that we have them. Because mm. often what you'd see, or at least what I saw, was you'd have a woman who's come in, she's on medication, she's there, I don't know, two months, she mm. gets discharged. Six months later, she's back in the service mm. because something is not, so nothing is being fixed in that way. She's being given a quick mm. kind of like, okay, we're going to give you this medication. It's going to bring down whatever the difficulty was and you're fine for now until that trigger happens again, until she goes back out into the community and she still doesn't have the money that mm. she needs to do whatever it is that she's doing or she's still being um, treated or whatever in the same way. So she'll come back into the system. Mm. In that sense, it's a broken system. Yeah. Because you're not actually helping the people that you seek to help because maybe it's underfunded, maybe mm. there's not enough time and not enough professional people to see everyone and like mm. look into their cases really deeply and spend that time with them to develop that relationship that might actually help them work out mm. where they're experiencing that thing. And obviously that depends if it's something that is from their experience in it or it's something that's like more genetic because yeah. obviously yeah. there are mental health issues that, that can be triggered by experience yeah. but are more... Um, based in, in genetics. And that's also why I'd say that I wouldn't say a complete no as well, because there are genetic components to some mental health mm. difficulties that might cause like a chemical imbalance or whatever mm. it is, which medication would be really beneficial for. Mm. It's, I don't believe that we shouldn't use um, medication to treat mental health difficulties. I just think that sometimes it needs to be looked at, mm. how, like whether or not we're using it, as you said, as kind of like a fast track or... And to me, that just comes down to being critical. And instead of being like, it's this or it's this, which side are you mm. on? Medicaid or not Medicaid? Mm. You know, nature or nurture mm -hmm. or, you God. know, genetics <laughs> or experience, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's mm -hmm. like, actually, sometimes it's both. Mm. Sometimes you need counselling and you need medication. Sometimes medication isn't the right thing. And mm. I think we, especially in America, but also here, we put a lot of importance on medication mm. and we don't put as much importance on lifestyle or, you know... Mm -hmm other elements mm -hmm. of society. I think most of the time, Big Pharma controls a lot of the way that we think about medication. On that note of, you know, society and the way that we view mental health issues, medication, diagnostics, what are the problems in society that you see as contributing to mental health issues for young people? Yeah, I think a big one that everyone's starting to realise is social media. In lots of ways. One, because I guess the way that social media is set up, it's very addictive mm. and in being addictive in that way I think it can often lead to people interacting virtually instead of you know face to face yeah which is a big one I also think media portrayal of what's attractive what's beautiful and I guess I'm, I'm thinking body image the way mm. that young girls and young boys think they're supposed to look and like look at what's apparently beautiful 
a lot of young people are experiencing something that has kind of almost become normalised. I feel like everybody just talks about anxiety, like, oh, I just have anxiety. And now I don't feel like you can say it to someone and now someone be like, oh, my God, are you OK? Yeah. They'll just be like, oh, my God, yeah, me yeah. too. Same. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, this great. Now we're just like in an anxiety friendship <laughs> where no one can help each other because... We're no all one, anxious. Yeah, we're mm. all anxious and no one sees it as that serious and, and society as a whole isn't acknowledging it as a fundamental problem mm. within young people. Mm. I think obviously it is with the rise of social media and this Mm. kind of false connectedness. Mm. This, oh, I have loads of friends because I comment on their stories or I comment on this or they send hearts, you know. And it's like actually it's a very surface level engagement. You're not really getting to know each other. You're Mm. not, it's not a space where you're going to talk about your intimate feelings with someone in a sense where they can really help you get through something, which is, you know, the basis of friendship. Yeah. So I'm just, other than um, social media, I mean, I think I would agree that body image is such Mm. a big thing. Um, I guess another one that comes into mind is is school. There's a whole thing in schools, which has always been like this, but kind of this idea that, you know, you pick your GCSEs and that will tell you what you're going to do with your A-levels, that's going to tell you what you're going to do with your lives Mm. and blah, 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 blah. And that's a lot of pressure when you think about the fact that when you're 16 and you're picking subjects that people are telling you are going to dictate what you're going to do for the rest of your future mm. it's kind of mad like <laughs> what you, like what what does that mean you're kind of just floating around until you're not floating around and then they're like great so you picked history you're going to be a historian until you're mm. 65 like which also isn't even true no it's not true but i don't think enough people are told that it's not true mm. and i think the way that exams are set up the way that schools are, are set up it causes a lot of anxiety it causes a lot of like low mood it causes suicidal ideation self-harm in a lot of young people I think that also kind of comes from that feeling of not knowing what to do and I don't know about other people in terms of suicidal ideation or self-harm but I remember when I was in secondary school and I was struggling with certain things and I think I heard about someone else doing it and making them feel better so I was like oh maybe I'll try that and I'm gonna feel better and I tried and didn't make me feel better (laughs) so I was like what is this release that someone else is talking about and actually when when young people don't have support Mm -hmm. We try out things Mm -hmm. that could be really harmful, you know? You can try out something the wrong way and it can have really, really terrible effects in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And actually, when young people don't have that support, you then turn to doing things that your friends are doing or someone else says and, you know... And I think it's even wilder now because you can just Google all of these things, Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, you could just... I remember there was a point in school where there was like tumblers around like self-harm mm. and that was just a thing and people would be like, oh yeah, I'm stressed so I'm going to do mm. that and I, you know, I can't really speak to whether or not that's true now but just in the sense that when you're struggling it's really easy to to tap into things in the internet and be like, oh, what what can help me? And Yeah, and if you're young, you're malleable. Yeah, exactly. You're... So you'll read something and you're like, okay, someone my age did this and it was helpful, I might do that. Mm. Um, and often that thing is not necessarily a good thing. And I think also going back to your education point, I think that is something that is definitely pushed in school. It's the idea that you must do a sensible job Mm. and like a kind of attainable job. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do anything else, then you're going to get shut down. And I definitely was shut down by, I mean, obviously trying to be a singer is like probably not the most, everyone's like, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to do that. But even to the, Mm. at the point of university, Mm. like when we had like a career person come in and I was in like a lecture hall or something Mm. and they asked, oh, who in here knows what they want to do? 
And someone put their hand up for me and was like, Poppy's going to be a singer. And I was like, shut up. up." And she kind of just like brushed it off because it was just like, well, there's no way that you could do that. Mm. And it's like, when will we see young people as um, allowed to have Mm. this crazy ambition or crazy dream and the most innovative people Mm. do have to think outside of the box. They do have to believe they can be something more than they have seen around them. Mm. And if we had teachers or educators that were more open to I guess it's just being more open-minded in general Mm. it's not only understanding how mental health works and how if you crush someone intentionally or unintentionally Mm. how that might affect them growing up how it might affect their choices how it might affect the way they view themselves and therefore the way they treat other people when they grow older then maybe young people would grow up in a different way Mm. and I don't think that is something that teachers are taught. And and mm. maybe they are, and the teachers I experienced just, <laughs> just didn't um, behave in that way. But I don't think that teachers are taught... Because, you know, like I feel like a teacher is such an important role. Like, the teachers that really influenced you or formed yeah. you had such a big effect on how you felt. Yeah. You know, the ones that you liked or the ones that made an effort to... To, like everybody can remember their favorite mm. teachers in school and the worst ones and the worst ones mm. who didn't didn't care Did at all yeah, yeah or ridicule people or whatever and so i feel like being a teacher is almost like being a parent mm-hmm. and especially for kids that don't have parents yeah. or don't have yeah. good role models for parents so i feel like mental health kind of also comes down to the way that we train professionals or mm-hmm. educators to deal with young people mm-hmm. it should be different and i and i think we have come a long way in understanding young people as being as complex as adults, mm. you know, as mm. as being the beginning of a complex forming adult. Mm. And that is incredible. But I think we, we still have a long way to go. Mm. And I think about, I guess, in terms of like psychology and, and other similar disciplines, there's a lot of stuff going on right now about like the adolescent brain and how teenagers have a higher propensity to like be like risk takers and mm. do all of these things. And if you're talking about teenagers being like put in a box and being told no they can't do this and blah 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 but if that is just the way that they will naturally turn out in in that way if you're shutting that down something's going to go wrong because they're supposed to be naturally risk takers so it's like how do we safeguard them how do we help them how do we or like channel that channel yeah Yeah. but how do we help them be who they're trying to be Mm. without yeah, I was about to swear, but I can't <laughs> so, yeah. We're both trying very hard not to swear. Honestly. Like, yeah. um, from the people that you meet, what do you think are the reasons that, that they feel closed or they feel unwilling to engage in that kind of professional sense? Mm. Well, one, I think that often young people don't know what services are even available. Mm. Thinking about like a 16-year-old who's come into our service, at 16, I didn't know that you could access mental health support. Oh, yeah, not Um, at all. And I guess it's kind of different depending on the services that you go to because you might have to be in a little bit more of a crisis to Mm. access some of them. But I think part of it is just not knowing that it's there and that it exists. But I think the other part of it is also thinking that you're the only one that thinks like this. Mm. It's kind of like when you're in that age group you're a little bit more egotistical when you're thinking so it's mm. like it's just me I'm the only one that's yeah, going to feel like yeah. this I'm the only one experiencing this and no one's really going to get it when it's actually like well every fourth person feels exactly the same way that you do mm. but you just don't know that and why would you because yeah no one's talking about no it. one's talking about it <laughs> yeah. it's not out nobody knows like it's great that like psychology and whatever has all of these studies but if young people don't know these things then why would they mm. and I think that's also part of the conversation is 
making people realise that so many people suffer from mental health issues. Yeah. And probably most people you know have a thing or two that they struggle with that mm. they don't want to talk about. Mm. And actually, if we all knew that, we'd probably be a lot less driven by this idea that we're going to be stigmatised yeah. if, if we admit it. Definitely for me, admitting any kind of mental health issue was the worst thing. I mm. think I... It depends on you as a person, but I think for me as a person, I definitely modelled myself on being strong, yeah. on being independent, on being the most powerful woman I could be because everybody told me that I couldn't be or I had to be a certain mm. way. Mm. And so admitting that I was struggling was like... The worst thing Yeah, ever. the worst thing. Like, I'm so weak. Mm -hmm. Why am I so weak? Just sort it out, Poppy. Mm. Just handle it mm. because this is... We don't have time for this. Mm. And I think probably a lot of people feel like that. And yeah. especially if you're entangled with masculinity mm. and... The idea of being a man and that plays in even more in certain ways. I think it can feel, until we destigmatize it, it can feel like something that is just unmentionable. Mm. And, and, that's, and that's a terrible thing because it, it isn't, it's normal. And we're only what we are at that time, yeah. you know? Yeah. Who we are is, is, is who we are at that moment. And we don't have to feel like that all mm. the time, you know? You don't always feel at your worst. Mm. And if you don't always feel like at your worst, that means you can always get to a better mental health, but only when you recognise that mm. you have bad mental health. And I think sometimes it's hard because you can get into that hole of, oh, I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of people just don't even know how to deal with it. like Because mm. they don't speak about it. So it's kind of like nobody's accessing or nobody knows that they're struggling in the way that they're struggling because they're not talking about it. Mm. And if they maybe were talking about it, then they'd be able to speak to someone who could help them or, or use the resources around them. Not necessarily a mental health professional, but, you know, there are some ways that, family support or whoever or counsellors or whatever who are in the community who are not in teams that, like I'm in mm. could be of service you know what I mean how do you think race gender class inequality intersects with how we understand our mental health or how we are diagnosed mm. or how we explain our mental health or how willing we are to engage mm. with a professional if I'm thinking about like engagement I think it's it's tricky one because often in a lot of, I don't like the term BME, but in often a lot of black and brown communities, let's say that instead mm. of saying um, BME, there's a distrust for a lot of services mm. in a lot of ways because of history. History mm. tells you that these services can't be trusted. Mm. So in the same way, it's kind of like, well, why would I go and tell them that I'm feeling anxious or I'm struggling in this way? I don't trust them. I don't even trust them to deal sometimes with physical health. So why mm. would I then trust them with something that feels really intimate? And in a lot of these communities, not all of them, there is an element of like religion or spirituality. And mm. often that can feel in contrast to seeking mental health support. So there was one woman that I... Um, I sat with in the ward that I was in and I kind of just asked her about whether or not she'd like told anyone about her difficulties and like mm. ever had therapy basically was what I was asking her and she was a bit like well no I'm religious so I pray mm. and that's enough I can't pray and then go and tell someone because that means I don't trust um, yeah I don't trust my prayer I don't yeah. I don't believe in my prayer and all, all of these things and again I think that comes back to having culturally sensitive Train, therapy yeah. or support or services or whatever because she was so adamant that the moment she spoke to this doctor of the mind then all of a sudden she doesn't believe her god mm. when and everyone kind of just ignored that idea from her and kind of like pushed it off as mm. this crazy like weird older woman when that's kind of the basis of her understanding of her mental health yeah, exactly and i even think in terms of people who 
maybe do try and access support and don't get the support that they need. There is a na- so I'm thinking of like black men right now. There's a narrative where black men are seen as aggressive. They're mm. seen as scary, intimidating, overbearing, all of these things. And when they come into a service and and that service has sees them in this way, it's easier to medicate them because mm. it's like, well, actually, I can, you know, I can only talk to them if they're a bit more subdued yeah. or whatever. And I think it all it plays out. That's why you see a higher proportion of black and brown people in these wards because it's kind of like, well, they're a little bit different. I don't really understand mm. what they're talking about when they bring up religious practices or like cultural practices mm. that are, are less Eurocentric. Even if you think about people who speak to... So when they're practising their religion, whatever that is, and they might speak aloud to certain things or, Mm. like, say things or, like, talking in tongues or whatever Mm. it is, that can be seen as, like, an unusual experience or, Mm. like, some people will be like, oh, maybe it's, like, psychosis, that kind of thing, Mm. when actually, no, they just... They are seeing things in a different way and not necessarily visibly seeing things, but they they hold values in a way that are different to maybe how that person has practised or trained or whatever. Mm. But just, like, on class and stuff, it's kind of, like, so psychosis... That is more common in poorer communities Mm. and often in the UK and in London. The poorer communities are black and brown communities. Mm. So you'll see higher levels of psychosis in those communities. Mm. And I I think that also plays into your feeling of whether you deserve to have access to those things. I think when you're from a poorer background, you don't feel like you have the right to a lot of things. I I definitely felt like I didn't fit into certain spaces. I don't deserve to be here or like I definitely didn't really know about university yeah, yeah. before I went to university yeah. and everybody when I got there seemed to have been like planning for university <laughs> their whole life the womb, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I was just like what like how do you know these big words and like what like, did you read how yeah like well, how has this happened we, we're in first year and no one's supposed to know anything and, and I really don't know anything and I think that is just access to spaces and feeling mm. like you can take up space and feeling Absolutely. like your presence is meaningful definitely comes from an idea of self-worth mm. and people who are from poor backgrounds are shown that their lives aren't as important mm. and so what does that mean for being in a mental health space mm. or because it because it is a very sterile professional mm. um stark environment mm. which is run by people who are, are very intellectual, yeah. have degrees, yeah. Yeah. have a certain status yeah. in society. And I think it is hard to open up to someone like Absolutely. that if you don't feel like they understand where you're coming from mm-hmm. or they don't understand the way that you deal with things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it definitely it definitely plays into it. Yeah. So I'd love to end on a proposition of hope and ask you what were some of the changes that you think are needed to create a better world and is there anything happening currently that you see as really positive and really helpful for young people? One of the changes that I hope to see in the discipline and I think that they're trying really hard to do that is to have more psychologists um, and that's at all levels whether that's like pre-training which is where I'm at and and post-training who are more representative of our Mm. population really like you Mm. know we want people who who are black and brown. We want people who are of different classes, of different um, sexual orientations, of different uh, religions. You know, we even want people who, and I think they're working towards this, who are expertise by experience in terms Mm. of they themselves have had mental health difficulties. I think the only way that the profession can really grow and help the people it's trying to help is to by 
being representative. Mm, reflective um, of them, yeah. I just think we're talking about it so much more. I mean, mm. here we are literally talking about it. But Which is mad. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think we are moving to normalising a lot of things and letting people know that they're not alone in that experience mm. and that actually if they talk about it and they find somebody to talk to about it, then change can happen. Mm. Um, you're not on your own. Yeah, you're not on your own at all. And if I'm speaking to children and adolescents and the youth whatever that means mm. then you're really really not alone it's so common in in the population to feel like you are but people are struggling around you and mm. there are ways that you can access help and it doesn't always have to be via a mental health professional because it is something that so many young people struggle with and something that is starting to be talked about but still isn't acknowledged enough to, mm. to be completely destigmatized Agony Aunt Kampf. Agony Aunt. <laughs> what Love advice it. would you give young people who might be facing some kind of struggle? I'd say that there are loads of resources online mm. and there are loads of services such as, it's called Cooth. It's like a text service, 24 hours, where you can text in and just be like, I'm struggling and mm. I need some support. But also I think it's about taking care of yourself or trying to understand what that means. Um, and I know it's difficult when you're a young person but kind of like doing things that you really enjoy is really important for mental health and doing it in company. So finding friends, doing it mm. with family, doing it with, with people around you. So yeah. Reject the social media matrix. I didn't want to say reject the social media, but I literally was like, throw it in the bin. This month, the spotlight is on our planet. Keep listening to hear a podcast that is making a difference. Hi. This is Alan from Tracks to Relax, a show designed to help you relax and get to sleep through guided meditation. We're celebrating Earth Day this year with a special sleep meditation and poem that's all about appreciating the planet we live on and giving it some much-needed love. Not only will this meditation help you relax deeply and fall asleep, it's our hope that it will also create a sense of gratitude within you as you listen and inspire you to do more personally to clean and preserve this beautiful planet for future generations to enjoy. To listen to our Earth Day episode, simply search Tracks to Relax wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com um, but that is what you're saying, though. That it's is like, what I'm just saying. actually meet up with your friend. Yes, don't go and FaceTime hang out. them. Yeah, go yeah, and hang don't out. Don't do yeah. it. I know it's a, a pandemic, um, <laughs> but yeah, hang socially distance. Socially distance. Hang out. Like, come <laughs> yeah. on. That's just like do a sport, paint, draw, mm. talk. Like do something that you actually enjoy, and do it with people that you like. And if you don't like anybody then, you know... <laughs> you get got, a cat. Get a cat. Play with your dog. Finally, mm. who are the strong women in your life and who has inspired you or influenced you in a way that has formed who you are today? I feel like this should be, like, my Oscar speech. <laughs> <laughs> I just list everybody and, like, I'd like to thank... And then someone from Queen and be like, so, I, I heard you did that podcast and you didn't mention my name. You see? <laughs> listen, everyone who I don't mention, yeah, it's all love. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I'm probably going to kick me off the podcast. I feel like you're seconds. the only person that's going to do, like, a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should have done a couple of disclaimers before. <laughs> Sorry, people. Who are the women in my life? Well, shout out to you. I'll oh. shout you out first oh, and foremost. What? Yeah. Wow. 
You have... I'm blushing. Stop it. Anybody listening, I'm blushing. Oh, my... I'm not doing the rest of that. <laughs> I'm just going to shout you out and move on. Um, I'd also probably... I think I have to shout out the the mum, the matriarch. She is... Mm. She's sick, man. She just... she's. I think she's bossed it, basically, and she... As in by making you? Well, yes, first <laughs> and foremost, by making me. But also she then, you know, she made two amazing sisters that I have who are... Doing bits. Then. Yeah, you have a, a women strong right? family. We're, we're, a little, we're a small yeah. little tribe of just like yeah. women who are just, you know, bossing it up. I, I shouldn't say that about myself. <laughs> I should be a little bit more humble. The but key what to I good mean mental is, health. <laughs> yeah. The key to good mental health is just to like gas yourself up every day. I actually did say that once in a therapy session. <laughs> I was like, you should big yourself up more. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, never mind. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's episode of my Strong Woman podcast. If you loved what you heard, please subscribe and tune in on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Big love. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.